welcome Ivor Davis. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on your sensational show. Thank you for being here. Um, How have you been holding up in the pandemic? Well, actually, I've been very busy, and that kind of keeps me um, sort of on the move, if you like. Um, I, I like biking and swimming and staying in mentally good shape and watching good movies and listening to sometimes to good music. And that's it. What about you? You know, you're slightly younger than me, only slightly. <laughs> what have you been doing to, other than other than launching a podcast? Listening to music and running. That's what I do, basically, Good. on the off time. Um, Terrific. So you've had quite a career in the journalism in, industry. I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Going back to 1964, this may have been late 63, I'm not very sure, but when did you first hear that you were going to be doing a tour with the Beatles as a journalist? Well, believe it or not, in August 1964, I got a call from my editor in London, a guy called David English, and he said, Um, get on the plane to San Francisco because the boys arrive very shortly and you'll be traveling with them for the next five to six weeks. And I said, who are the boys? (laughs) Well, of course, he told me. I thought, well, you know, I've heard of them. But don't forget, Hudson, sorry to keep impinging on your age, but back in 1964... We didn't have the internet. We, we couldn't sneeze in on the East Coast and I would say bless you on the West Coast in 10 seconds. <laughs> Communication was a little slower. Sounds like I'm talking about medieval times. Anyway, so what I knew about the Beatles was that I'd seen them in February 1964 on the Ed Sullivan Show. And I thought, wow, these guys are from Liverpool. They're pretty good. And everybody raved about them. The girls were screaming. Ed Sullivan told the girls to stop screaming. They carried on screaming. So, and then I was impressed because in 1964, 74 million people tuned into that show. So I thought maybe, maybe they've got a future. <laughs> and, and so off I went to San Francisco, got off the plane went to the Hilton Hotel where there was a scene of Bedlam. There were like 250, 300 girls outside screaming. I fought my way through, went to the hotel, said, I'm, uh, you know, I need a room for a couple of nights. They said, we'll fall up. I said, I'm with the Beatles. I said, of course. And then, and then I went to see a guy called Derek Taylor, who was a brilliant journalist turned Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager's assistant. He was a publicist for the Beatles. And he was the one that introduced me to the boys. And then the rest of the time, it was a crazy, a crazy ticket to ride for the next 35 days. Great fun. But I will say this. I never realized that 56 years later, you and I would be talking about the Beatles. Because who knew they were going to be, you know, rock and roll history icons? Over Never here. knew. Never knew. Um, you know, the communication was slow, but at least you could sneeze in public then. Yes, you could. <laughs> you could. And people didn't wear masks. No. Although they wore masks in Asia. And we used to sit there. It's nothing to do with the Beatles. But in America, they used to sit there and say, what are these people in Asia, running around in the streets wearing masks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, so what was what were your first impressions of John? Well, my first impression of John was the same as the rest of the boys. Um, uh, I went up to their suite with Derek Taylor. And Derek, as I said, was my in. He was the guy that, you know, paved the way. And he introduced me to all of the Beatles. Now, 
you've got to realize they just got off the plane from England. They were all a bit jet lagged and they were watching themselves on color television arriving at the airport. And they were thrilled because England didn't have color TV, believe it or not. Can you ever believe a day, Hudson, when there wasn't color TV? Because in your lifetime, you, you don't know it, do you? All I've known is colored TV. Yeah, there you go. So where was I? Okay, so what happened was uh, Derek introduced me to John, Paul, George, and Ringo, and they both, they all sort of grunted. <laughs> and um, I thought, well, what a, what a warm welcome that is, isn't it? But they were jet lagged and they weren't interested in meeting other people. They just wanted to see themselves arriving in color on television. And so I will say this, that once the journey began, and it was a crazy journey, uh, we all became pals because in a way I became kind of part of the family because they could not leave their hotel rooms. They were stuck with me for five weeks. I mean, anybody who was stuck with me for five weeks would have to become friendly with me, believe me. Maybe it would take you longer, Hudson, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but I mean, um, like, I mean, yeah, because if they went outside, you know, they would have gotten mobbed with teen- everybody, teenage girls and everybody. But Indeed. It's, it, I mean, I can't imagine, like, if he went out in public, like, I can imagine getting in and out of hotels was a nightmare. That's what happened all the time, because... First of all, we would come, you know, they were in limo number one. I was in limo number two. Uh, we, we went from airport to airport. We went, we had, we had motorcycle escorts from the airport to the hotel. We never went in the front door. We went in the back entrance because there were so many girls, mostly girls screaming around there. And it was, it was crazy. And um, I know I don't want to jump ahead, but I'll tell you this. When they went back uh, five weeks later, John said, you know, we never saw America. It's, it's terrible. We wanted to see America. We never, we never hardly ever got outside of our hotel except to go to a auditorium, go to a press conference, go to the airport. So it was a kind of a rather truncated looking at America. We don't know America, said John. But you're asking me about John. Yeah. Um, you know, John was the best of the bunch in, in this way. He was funny. He was provocative. He loved to needle you. He loved to try and try and get under your skin. Uh, my, my name is Ivor. He called me Ivan. Ivan the Terrible. I said, I said, John, it's Ivor. He just blew me off. It was always that. So that was the kind of thing that John liked to do. He was funny, as I say, provocative, and he said outrageous things. And that's way he, that's the way he was. That was in his genetic makeup. The rest was slightly different, but the same. Um, how, so on like the tours, like where was it like your favorite place, like your favorite auditorium that you guys went? Cause I'm guessing you sat in the front row for every show. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we had our seats in the front row of every show and Brian Epstein, their manager would give us the, 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 the play sheet playlist. Well, it was ridiculous because they did the same playlist everywhere except in Kansas city where they opened with the song Kansas City. <laughs> you being you being a, a, a young musicologist, you know, you know what that song is. So otherwise it was always boom, 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 boom. Um, it was um, 12 songs, 13 songs. And and you know, I know you've studied this closely, but here's a question for you. Can I ask you a question? Oh, of course. How long do you think the Beatles played? on their first American tour, how, for how, how long did they perform for? 30 minutes. You must have read my book. Yes, you're right. They, that, but you're, you're exaggerating a bit. 26 minutes, 27 minutes, 
sometimes 27 and a half minutes. If you were lucky. It was a a running gag. Did we break the record, lads? You know, did we go, did we do it 25 minutes and 18 seconds? But you know, today, you can never get away with 30 minutes on stage. Oh, gosh. I mean, when I've heard people that have seen Paul in concert and he plays for three or four hours straight. Yeah. Well, I'll just jump ahead and say, before the coronavirus, I went to San Diego to see Paul. And um, I went backstage before the show and we chatted. And I said to him, well, I, you, you know, you used to play for 30 minutes or less. Do you, are you going to play longer, Paul? And he said, wait and see. <laughs> and he, he played three hours and 15 minutes. He never, did you see a Paul McCartney concert? Uh, no, but I've, I know a lot of people that have. Three hours and 15 minutes never leaves the stage. I swear the guy's an Energizer bunny. Oh, uh, unbelievable. Energizer bunny. I think that was made in his, in his form. That, that was Paul. But Ringo does his own show. Have you seen a Ringo show? No. I've got to see also, a Beatle. <laughs> well, Ringo and his all-star band do about one and a half hours to just two hours at max. But Ringo is very clever. Um, he was never the best singer in the band. I think he actually played the drums, if my memory... No, anyway, so he goes That was Pete Best. <laughs> Pete Best. Oh, Pete Best. Well, Pete Best sometimes does a guest appearance. No, yeah. I'm only kidding. <laughs> That's an interesting story. But, but, but when you see Ringo perform today, and he loves to go on the road, as Paul does, Ringo leaves the stage lets the young musicians in the, in the all-star band do their thing and then comes back on again. So he knows his limitations, but people come to see Ringo and he knows that. Yeah. Um, and like, have you, um, how many times have you seen Paul just out of curiosity? Well, I've only, well, I've seen Paul a few times after, after the, I left, you know, the Beatles, ended in 66. Yeah. I saw, I saw Paul in New York once. I saw him in LA. Um, I saw him when he was married to uh, Linda um, in Beverly Hills. And that's a long time ago because Paul, as you know, as you, you're, you follow the music, Paul wrote live and let die for the James Bond movie. Yeah. And, and that was, I think a seventies, eighties. I can't remember what year. 73. 73. Okay. And I, so I went to the Beverly Hills Hotel and there was Paul there and um, he was up for an Oscar. And um, he said to me, I thought I always remember this. He said, you know how long it took me to compose Live and Let Die for the movie? I thought, I said, what, two or three days? He said, 10 minutes. <laughs> he said, I sat down and did it in 10 minutes. Well, he never won an Oscar, but it was quite a good song. And as you know from the show, he does Live and Let Die on stage and don't they have fireworks yeah it's what i've seen on youtube i mean it's crazy yeah i mean i think i would just be there staring at that staring yeah. at not being able to speak i still don't know how you were you were able to do your job journalizing well, yeah well it was it was it was a great fun um you know i know that you i'm i'm on your program for you to ask me questions, but I, I was fascinated to ask you a question. So, Oh, absolutely. Okay. So, so here's the thing. How can, how did you suddenly become so immersed in, in the Beatle thing? What, I mean, did, did your mother put Beatles on her tummy, Beatle music on her tummy when you were in the womb, not the room, the womb? <laughs> no. My mother did not know, pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, very good. So uh, going back to, um, I think, uh, two th- I was eight years old. My grandfather, he was on the show a bunch of episodes back. He gave me a record player. And one of those yeah. records was Imagine, John Lennon. Oh, wow. Yes. And then um, a couple of years later for the 50th anniversary, I bought Sgt. Pepper. And I've never looked back. Yes. It's, well, I, I want to tell you that I have done, since I did my 
Beatles and Me on tour book, I got caught up in the um, in some of the Beatles conventions. And um, unfortunately, the last year or so, there's been nothing except virtual. Um, and and there are people my age, there are their children, and there are their grandchildren coming to the Beatles conventions. Who have, you know, it's like a it's like being passed on a, a sort of um, memory or whatever. It's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, going back to John, kind of backtracking a little bit. Julian was born, so was like Cynthia calling him constantly. Well, one of the great stories was this, and this happened because John would call us in the middle of the night. I mean, middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning. Me. Um, the guy from the West Westinghouse, Arthur Schreiber, who was the Westinghouse political correspondent, who I got friendly with because he said to me the first week, I'm a political reporter and they send me on this bloody trip. What do I want to do? What do I know about rock and roll? Anyway, I, we're still good friends. Arthur's wonderful. And I want to tell you that you should, you should, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about him. I'll send you the link. He's in a retirement community in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Brilliant memory, great storyteller. But So Arthur and I would go to John's room at two in the morning to play Monopoly. Um, and in, just before the game started or halfway through the game, John would call Cynthia. And don't forget, we were eight hours behind him. So at two o'clock in the morning, it was 10 o'clock in the morning in Liverpool. And, um, he, would, and he would get on the phone to Julian and he would goo goo and he played like the kind of daddy, daddy noises, uh, transatlantic daddy noises. And, um, and in those days it was expensive to call overseas. So I think John spent a few shillings on phone calls. And then we would get back to Monopoly at two or three in the morning and John would cheat badly at Monopoly, but we let him get away with it because I think Arthur and I won some money playing poker and uh, we lo he, John lost quite a bit of money, probably oh, over the tour, he lost about seven or eight dollars. I mean, big money then. Uh, but he never paid us his, his gambling debts. And even today, I send a note to Yoko and she just ignores my uh, requests for gambling payments. But, you know, what can you do? It's a beetle. He can't say no. <laughs> but wow, I mean, I'm starstruck. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's fun. But we never knew, Hudson, we never knew that they would be, you know, legends. And they never knew they would be legends. No. And, like, um, going back to Ringo a little bit, in a recent interview, I believe he said that um, he was, like, he needed touring to help him be up all happy, which is really something that I thought was wonderful. Yeah, um, uh, to clarify that uh, a little bit, when you say he needed touring to be happy? Yeah, like to yeah. be his persona. So yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if that is, you know, well, you know, active. I, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this. Um, of the four Beatles, uh, Paul, we'll, we'll talk about Paul. I mean, he was always a uh, you know, always a very personable guy. Ringo was the drummer. Ringo didn't have all that much to say, and neither did George. They, George was, they, call, they called him the quiet one. He just didn't have a great deal to say. So if you don't know what to say, okay. Now, the only time the boys, Ringo and all of them, lit the, lit the scenery up was when they had press conferences because it was like the four stooges. Now the three stooges were, were, were comedians back in the, in, the, in the early 50s, in the 40s. So the Beatles and the Marx Brothers were another bunch of a family of comedians. Anyway, the Beatles were very funny together. They were like, did you ever, I'm sure you saw A Hard Day's Night. Oh yes. And, and of course in A Hard Day's Night, they have, they meet the press and, the, and I think, <laughs> Somebody says to George, how did you find America? And George says, oh, oh. I can't. <laughs> George says, 
you, you make a left turn at Iceland or something. You know, yeah. That's how you found America. Good. Yeah, you. something like so that. They were very funny, very witty, and they would they could finish each other's jokes. So as a as a unit, they were they were hilarious individually. John was hilarious. Paul was charming. George was a bit on the quiet side, and Ringo Ringo was the drummer. So what do you expect? <laughs> I mean. I mean, Hudson, you know, you, I know you haven't been around all that long, um, but do you know a drummer who's a great personality, who is Mr. Quixotic, who is Mr. Mr. Personality, Mr. Tell Jokes? No, drummers don't tell jokes. I mean, maybe somebody's going to call in Mick when, Fleetwood, when the show airs and say, hey, Hudson, I'm a drummer and I can tell jokes. Get him or her onto your show. Denny Sewell's kind of pretty funny. Who is? Denny Sewell, Wings drummer. He's pretty funny. Oh, Wings funny. drummer. Okay, yeah, well, okay. I don't know him. <laughs> I don't know him. But, you know, having traveled with Paul and Linda, I think he would have to be funny to survive. But anyway, good, good, to, good to hear that. Yeah. Um, so moving into Paul, what, what was, you know, like Paul – He's always very charming, very nice guy. Like, I mean, and he was with Jane Asher at the time. Was Jane with him on that tour? No. Uh, we all knew that Paul had Jane Asher, the girlfriend, waiting, waiting back in London, waiting for Tor to come back. And, you know, maybe they'd, and it would be a happy ever after story. Look, they were the Beatles, four young men, four young men with very, healthy libidos, four young men who loved to be in the company of pretty girls or pretty women. Um, so there were pretty women galore. So Paul was a, a boyfriend of Jane because, as Beatle fans know, Paul actually lived in Jane's parents' home with Peter Asher. Yeah. He lived in, the, I think, the attic at the top of the stairs. And so, but they were all, I mean, young men, these women wanted to hold their hands and whatever they wanted to hold. And um, they, they loved it. And Paul, I remember very well, Paul was going out with a beautiful actress called Peggy Lipton. Um, and Peggy Lipton said to me at a party that the Beatles had, I am going to marry Paul. I remember that. I thought, well, how does she know? Well, as it happened, her prognosis of her didn't work out because Paul didn't marry her. She married uh, Quincy Jones, uh, the musician. And so there were a lot of girls there. Anyway, getting back to Paul, he was charming from day one. On the private jet that, we, that they rented, the uh, Electra jet, which we traveled with, uh, with the Beatles, with Jackie DeShannon, with whoever, the Righteous Brothers who were on the tour. Um, Paul would come down the aisle and say, can I get you a drink, Ivor? Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll have a gin and tonic. Easy on the tonic. And Paul would come back and serve me a drink, which was wonderful. I never even tipped him. I mean, I never tipped him. I mean, he... Anyway, so that was... The, the experience, and he was always good-natured, charming, and that charm it was his calling card, and he's got that charm today because, as I mentioned, um, going backstage before the show, Paul was wonderful, introduced me to Nancy, his newish wife, or his Jewish wife, newish or Jewish, both, um, and um, it was fun, and he just knew how to do it. And when people, when his manager said, ah, Paul, time for the show, Paul said, no, no, I'm talking with Ivor. You know, very clever, very well a diplomat. He could have been a good diplomat. And what year was this? Was this right before the pandemic? Yes, uh, the pandemic was, was, was uh, 2020. This was in November 2019. Oh, wow. San Diego uh, Petco Stadium in downtown San Diego, great, a great show, a terrific show. Wow, that's awesome. 
Yeah. Speaking of that, what's your favorite Paul McCartney album? Just off of curiosity. My favorite Paul McCartney album or song? Album. Um, well, I love some of the stuff. Um, um, I'm bad on the, the one, was it? There's something of McIntyre when he was up in Scotland, he did. You know, That was just a that. single. That was a single. Okay, so I'm only going to tell you singles. The song I love that he does, of course, is Eleanor Rigby. Oh. And also, I love the song he did for Nancy, his wife, which is much later called My Valentine. On Kisses on the Bottom. That's a beautiful song. Yeah, isn't it? So, um, you know, if, if you were to say to me, either, um, what did you, you know, and say this song, what album was it on? I can't tell you. <laughs> I know a lot about the Beatles, but I'm very bad on saying, oh, that was, I mean, I can say a song to you. I can say to you, um, here's a test, ready? One of my favorite John Lennon songs, and I'm going to say this with the Beatles, and you're going to correct me, I love Working Class Hero, and you're going to say, Ivor, you're an idiot. Working Class Hero was not a Beatles song. It was not a Beatles song. <laughs> Thank you. Um, was, can, you tell, can you remind me what that one was? Uh, working Class Hero on his first solo album on Plastic Ono Band. Okay, and I must tell you this, Plastic Ono Band, exactly right, very good. You, you know, you should be on Jeopardy. Um, <laughs> um, he did that song and that album, and I was in L.A. after he'd undergone primal therapy. Now, I, I don't yeah. know if you, yeah. know, if you know this, but he came to L.A. to spend time with a guy called Arthur Janov, who was a psychologist. And what, what happens in primal therapy is that you go into this lab, this nursery, and I went there and I didn't see John doing it, I saw other people doing it, and you are reborn. You know, you, you become like a baby. And John did it with Yoko. Primal therapy, I forget the year, 70, 69, 70. Yeah. Um, and, um, and after he emerged from this, he made this Plastic Ono, and it's a very personal one because, again, you can correct me on this, didn't he have a, a song called Mother? Yeah, that was the single leading off the okay. album. So, it, you know, that emerged. So at least Primal Therapy wasn't a waste of time. It gave him <laughs> the visceral stuff, including Working Class Hero, which I love. I love the lyrics and, and he kind of, and the other one I like about, and you and, and correct me again, um, or put me on the right path there, Hudson. Um, I love, you know, I love other other songs. Um, let's see, what's the other one that he does now that's great, Working Class Hero? Oh, yeah. What about the one he says, I don't believe in Elvis, I don't believe in this, I don't believe in that? What is God. that song? God, same album. God, okay, same album. So that's a great one, isn't it? Oh, it's so top 10 Lennon songs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I like the songs on that one because, again, they, they came from the heart and they were all about John and Yoko. So there it is. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, yeah. So I know you've written a book about Charles Manson and the Beatles. Yes. I am a little confused on that with the whole helter-skelter thing. Would you be able to clear it up, please? Well, here's what happened. Um, in 1964, I covered the Beatles. In 1965, I traveled with them a little bit. And 1966, uh, only when they came to L.A. Um, so in 1969, as a reporter for a big London newspaper, I was covering the Sharon Tate murders. Now, Sharon Tate was a beautiful blonde actress, eight months pregnant, married to the famous French-Polish film director, Roman Polanski. He was in London. She was in uh, Beverly Hills in a canyon house. And one day, one night, August 1969, a bunch of people went up and murdered Sharon Tate and four of her friends. Eventually, cops sort of solved the case. And 
I was on the case. I was following it. When I heard Charles Manson was, was the ringleader of the killers, I went to a ranch called the Spahn Movie Ranch. And there's a film called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which was done by Quentin Tarantino, which tells you about that, sort of. It's a fairy tale. It's not quite the same a story. So I go as a journalist um, to this ranch. And, I, and, and some of the Manson members who are not involved in the killings talk to me. And they tell me, and I think they've all, they're all bonkers. They're all on LSD. Paul, Paul Watkins tells me Charlie every day played the White Album music. And in the White Album music, he told us, and we believed it, that the Beatles were sending the Manson family secret messages about an about to happen black and white revolution in America with blood flowing in the streets and Charlie Manson and his gang because the Beatles had sent them secret messages in the lyrics on the album, on the white album. Charlie would be forewarned and would escape to an underground city in the desert. Charlie brainwashed the Beatles followers, the Manson followers that the Beatles were sending messages. Well, you can imagine, when I heard that story, I thought, this is utter rubbish, a total, somebody's gone crazy. And I, because I knew the Beatles lyrics, I knew Helter Skelter, I knew the songs, I knew that Helter Skelter was not a, 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 a song written to go out and kill tell people to go out and kill each other. I mean, it was ridiculous. Revolution, the same pig is. That was what Manson told his followers. So I, I thought this guy is crazy to, to say that. A year later, um, June, July, 1970, as a journalist, I sit in a courtroom and the district attorney stands up and says, ladies and gentlemen, the motive for these horrendous murders is that the Beatles music according to Charles Manson, inspired him to tell them to go out and kill. And I was flabbergasted. But they used that thesis, that motive, in a year-long trial of Charles Manson and his acolytes and, and got a conviction. So go figure. So moving back to the earlier times, Let's talk about the encounter with Elvis. You were the eyewitness to that jam, if I remember correctly. Yes. Well, what happened was in 1964, um, Colonel Parker, Tom Parker, the manager of Elvis Presley, and Brian Epstein, the manager of the Beatles, got together and wanted to bring their boys together. John desperately wanted to meet Elvis. John grew up. He told me with Heartbreak Hotel, Blue Suede Shoes, when he was a younger boy, he used to listen to it on a, uh, on a radio, a, a channel called Radio Luxembourg, which was a, a, a European channel, music, pop music channel. So he wanted to meet them. He wanted to meet Elvis. The other guys wanted to meet Elvis. But in 1964, they were too busy. The Beatles were touring. Elvis was making movies, blah, blah, blah. So in 1965, I got a call. Mal Evans, the road manager of the Beatles, said, we're going to see Elvis tonight. Get over here. So I went over there and I discovered later on that Brian Epstein had written a note to Colonel Parker saying, well, I'm looking forward to the boys seeing Elvis. But two conditions. One, no press. Two, no tape recorders. Three, no cameras. So I went along because I was able to squeeze in with them. And when we get to Elvis's place, Elvis or a guy that looks like Elvis is sitting on the couch in the room, playing with a remote. Again, rem remotes. Wow. The Beatles were stunned. What is a remote? It changes channels. You click it and it changes channels. And Elvis has a giant, giant television in the, in the living room, or at least 18 inches big. 
which was giant for giant, giant. maybe even maybe even 24 inches i never actually was huge for back huge. then exactly huge and elvis is flicking channels the beatles go in there and nobody nobody introduces the beatles to elvis i mean it's ridiculous nobody takes it upon themselves to be the diplomat so for 10 minutes they sit around looking at elvis switching channels it's ridiculous you know i'm the fly on the wall what's going on here finally elvis i've got to give it to him he has a sense of humor jumps up and says i thought you guys came here to jam because i'm going to bed and the beatles jumped up and then they brought in the, the, the guitars plugged them in poor old ringo went to play snooker Paul in the next room, he, there was no drums. And for about 15 minutes, the Beatles, led by Elvis, played mostly Elvis music. And that broke the ice. And then they started talking and uh, chatting and all the rest of it. But, and of course, in the room was a, a little girl, a little girl who came up and was introduced to the Beatles. She was, a, a, she looked about 13 and she was about five foot tall with hair another three feet tall. And that was a lady called Priscilla. Yeah. Priscilla. That was his, that was his young fiance. <laughs> uh, anyway. So after that, uh, they warmed up a bit. They talked about, uh, Paul said to Elvis, you know, Elvis, I wish you would um, make the kind of songs, record the kind of songs you used to make. Elvis took offense with the suggestion that, What's Paul, this guy, telling me what to sing? Uh, and he would, but, but what I didn't realize at the time, Hudson, was that Elvis was jealous of the Beatles because they'd knocked him off the hit parade, number one. He was king, and these little upstarts from Liverpool had taken over. And also, Elvis was making three awful movies a year, three movies a year. Elvis in Hawaii, Elvis in in uh, New Jersey, uh, you know, all those silly places. So, um, so he was jealous of them. And the Beatles made one single, one single a movie, A Hard Day's Night, and it's a smash, a smash hit. So, so I didn't realize it at the time, but Elvis was jealous of the Beatles. And that's why he gave them, uh, I mean, he wasn't too friendly at first. And the conversation was a bit stilted. But the one thing I remember was that they all loved the movie that had just come out, a movie with starring Peter Sellers called um, Stanley Kubrick movie called uh, How I Love to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which was a comedy film made by Stanley Kubrick. Elvis loved the sense of humor. The Beatles loved the sense of humor. They also loved the star of the movie, a guy called Peter Sellers. And Peter Sellers was a great comedian, English actor, who was John and the Beatles' favourite, star of the John and the Beatles' favourite show, the Goon Radio Show in England. So they hit it off. They said they would meet again. Never happened. So um, moving to the Dylan meeting, where they um, smoked um, some stuff together, we'll say. <laughs> they did. Um, what was that experience like, witnessing that? Well, I didn't know about it, but we were all in um, a hotel by, by Kennedy Airport. It was called Idlewild Airport at the time, and we were staying at the Idlewild Inn, which was a, you know, a sort of okay motel half a, a mile from the airport. And uh, we were having a farewell party because the Beatles were going home the next day. So I was up there and I suddenly saw this guy, this scruffy fellow with a stubble beard and a backpack walk in. And I thought, that looks a lot like Bob Dylan. <laughs> and, it, and it was Bob Dylan because as soon as he, so we were on the outside of, of this suite and we were eating and having drinks all on Brian Epstein. And when you, you could have a drink, a free drink on Brian Epstein, it was terrific. Um, <laughs> So we were having drinks, and, and, and so Mr. Dillon goes in the, 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 shut, the shuttered doors. Somebody puts a towel at the foot of the door. I thought, what's going on here? 
And, but suddenly inside, you know, there's sort of an odor that some people recognize wafting in from the room with the Beatles and Bob Dylan and Brian Epstein and a couple of the roadies. And um, fi finally the door was open and a, a cloud of smoke enveloped me. And I thought, hmm, I wonder what that, that odd odor is. Uh, because anyway, it was, of course, marijuana. And then I, I said to Mal, what happened? He said, because Ringo, by the way, was on the floor in the room, in the suite, rolling on the floor. And I said to Mal, what happened? He said, well, Bob handed Ringo a fat cigarette. And Ringo, not knowing diplomacy, I mean, there is diplomacy apparently when you are smoking marijuana, he smoked the whole cigarette. He never gave it on. He never took a puff and passed it on, which apparently is what you had to do. But there were no written books about it. So Ringo, you know, just smoked the whole thing. And he was giggling. Brian was giggling. And the next morning, we all went to the airport. I think the Beatles were slightly hungover. And we all said goodbye to the Beatles. They jumped on the plane and went back to England. And um, believe it or not, Mr. Lennon and Mr. Dillon kept in touch so that a year or so later, Bob went over to London and stayed with, with John. So they kept the relationship going. They loved, they said they loved Bob Dylan's music. They first heard it when they were in Paris. Um, I, th I forget the year, maybe 60, 63, 64. And um, they always wanted to meet Dylan. And that's their strange encounter with Mr. Bob Zimmerman. Oh, so, Dylan, Zimmerman. His name was Zimmerman, you know. Yeah, big Bob Dylan fan, so. Yeah, how do you know? What can I tell you? <laughs> so, um, moving away from the Beatles, you were around when um, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? Well, as a foreign correspondent on the West Coast of America, I covered everything, every big story. And um, as soon as the, I mean, as soon as the Beatles went home, I went back to LA and the next story was covering the Warren Commission report on John Kennedy. So you forget about the Beatles and you concentrate on John Kennedy's Warren Commission report. But in 1968, which was four years after I first met the Beatles, I happened to be traveling with Bobby Kennedy, who was the bright hope for the Democrats to become, to become president. And Bobby was a, charis a charismatic guy. I traveled with him up and down California. He was very warm. And I remember see, seeing him when we arrived in LA on the night of the election, his hands were raw, raw, because he'd been shaking hands with so many people. And we were at the hotel. We know, we know Bobby has won California. He's won California and he's got all these electoral votes to go on to the Chicago convention. We're going to have a press conference. Bobby says, thank you to the mayor. Let's move on to Chicago. We start to move to the press conference. Somebody takes him for a shortcut through the kitchen, through the pantry. I'm 20, 30 feet behind. Suddenly I hear balloons popping. One, two, three, four, five, six. Then suddenly I hear screaming. I push my way into the pantry of the kitchen and there's screaming. There is Bobby on the floor, bleeding. Ethel, his wife is cushioning his head. She says, she screams, give him air. And it's Bedlam. And there is Bobby bleeding, dying. It's an image that you never forget. And then hours later, we're at the hospital at three o'clock in the morning. And, they, and Mankiewicz, Bobby Kennedy's press guy, says Bobby is dead. But when I think of that picture in the kitchen, 
I never saw the killer. I did see somebody under a sea of bodies. And that was Sehan, Sehan, the guy who murdered Bobby. And it's, as I say, an image that just never disappears. Um, today, you could never get that close to a presidential candidate. But then you, you could. And that was the terrible night that Bobby got murdered. So um, moving back to the Beatles, um, before um, John and George passed, um, after your meetings, did you ever keep, did you keep in touch and see them at all? Um, about John, I saw John after he went through um, he went through primal therapy. I went to the house. He, has, he was renting or borrowing from the record mogul Lou Adler. It was in Bel Air, California, in a posh neighborhood opposite the Bel Air Hotel. And John was trying to get his career back on track. So I went to the house and I knocked at the door to do the interview with John. And we sat at the pool and a young lady uh, invited me in. And um, John said, this is May Pang, my secretary. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. May Pang. Okay. So we sat around and uh, I didn't know that, that Oyoko had sent John to California with May Pang as a, as a consort, as a companion. Uh, but John talked about what he was doing, how he wanted to resurrect his career. He was charming. Uh, we had drinks. He had drinks. At the pool, I mean, I was trying to do my job. My photographer, Cyril Maitland, took some great pictures of John at the pool. And um, John was charming. And, and that was it, the last time I ever saw John. And then uh, I saw George a few years later before he died. Uh, Derek Taylor was very close to George and came to America with, was it Black Label, White Horse Label? They had some label. Dark some Horse. Record. Dark horse, okay, I was close. <laughs> I had the horse ride. And John and, and, and George came over with Derek and, and we hung out together a bit because he was promoting. And then Ringo, Ringo I saw in concert about five years ago. But Ringo, I remember this story. Ringo came to Los Angeles pr to promote a PBS children's program, something about... Thomas the uh, Tank. Thomas the Tank, yes. Very good. <laughs> Thomas the Tank, PBS. So I go and have lunch with him with a publicist from PBS. And we sit down and the publicist from PBS wants him to talk about Thomas the Tank Engine or Thomas the Engine Tank. Um, and Ringo, for some reason, decides to tell me that he's been sober for four years and 37 days and three hours. So we're talking about this kids program. The publicist for PBS television is going, why is he talking about his alcoholism to this guy when we want him to talk about Thomas the Tank? But Ringo said to me that, that he used to, and I, I didn't know this, um, he said he used to never like to go away from his house more than an hour because he so desperately yearned for a drink. He couldn't do it. And, and so he was so pleased with the fact that he was sober, sober for four years and whatever. And um, in fact, Derek Taylor, the publicist, sent me a book that he wrote. Derek was also an alcoholic. Derek Taylor sent me a book that he wrote in which Ringo writes a foreword. It's, it's, it's sort of anti-drinking and all that stuff. And to this very day, Ringo looks 59. I think he's 80 now. Yeah. 80, right? 80 last July. And um, doesn't drink. And Ringo, I saw him on the Colbert show. I know she's watched the Colbert. Stephen Colbert, he was on. Ringo looks like he's 25 years younger than me. But anyway. Ringo okay. looks younger than me, and I'm 13. Yeah. It's crazy. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, he looks younger. 
wait a minute, let me, let me, I think that's a slight exaggeration. You know, younger than you, there may be, but, you know, he works out every day with, he's a vegetarian. He has a, a trainer coming to his house in Los Angeles every day. Uh, that helps. But he looks terrific, doesn't he? he Even does. younger than you. Yeah. Well, I think that about concludes our interview. Now I want to turn it over to you. And what would you like to plug? Well, I just like to plug the fact that it was even fun talking to you. It's it, you are. Uh, I mean, without doubt, this is another milestone for the Guinness Book of Records. This is the first time I've been interviewed in such an intelligent, brilliant way by somebody of your generation. So that's congratulations and thank you. Um, I'm doing, funnily enough, on Thursday, a program for middle school kids. Would you believe middle school kids in Ventura County is about five schools coming together to hear me talk about the Beatles, which is good. So, I mean, I'm on a, I'm on a youth kick. The only problem is how can I turn it back so I look like I was when I was 25 traveling with the Beatles? If you know the answer to that, send me in a stamped addressed envelope. Anyway, so thank you. My books, The Beatles and Me on Tour, great fun, terrific fun, great stories. Um, I wrote a book, I must tell you this, a quick children's book called, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Penguins. And it's about four English penguins from the Falkland Islands who decide they want to become rock stars almost <laughs> as big as the Beatles. And the great thing about the four penguins is their first big hit on the Falkland Islands is I want to hold your flipper, which is a great song if you have never heard it. And um, and they they the great success for the pelicans, for the penguins, sorry, penguins, is when they appear on a show in New York, television show, to great acclaim, called the Ed Pelican Show. <laughs> so the penguins are on the pelican show. Anyway. And they sing songs like, oh, we, all, uh, we all grew up in a yellow ecological submarine or something like that. Anyway, um, so I have fun with that. And the final book is not much fun, but a good read. And when the Beatles are in it, it's, it's Manson Exposed, a reporter's 50-year journey into madness and murder. And now I'm working on another book, which I'm not going to tell you about, because if I do, you won't have me on your show. So it's not about the Beatles. It's about... Great, the greatest, uh, the greatest showbiz people in Hollywood history that I had fun, fun times with. So with that, thank you for having me, Hudson. See you again. <laughs>